The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a super special treat for me because anytime I get to have a friend in here, it's a special treat. But more than that, because it's Savannah Guthrie, one of the foremost journalists in our country, host of the Today Show. And um, Savannah, thanks for being here. It's such a pleasure to be here. You should have said, and fan of Brian Koppelman. I'm a huge fan, so I'm excited to be on your show. See, isn't that so sweet of you to say? And also, like, so um, great journalistic Today Show host technique. Oh, no. Well, it happens to be true, too. Yes. No, I know. No, we are. I mean, um, like, in the interest of all total full disclosure, um, Savannah's husband, Mike, and I have been friends since college. You're the person who told me that Mike was once known as... Money Mike. Yeah, because he was a huge hip hop fan in college and then nobody knew. And even you didn't know. I didn't. When you told me that, I was shocked. Because if you know Mike, the last thing you think is hip hop. Well, he was like chief of staff for Al Gore and he's this hugely successful guy at the intersection of politics and media and business. And he's a remarkable person. But in college, he's the first person who explained to me how hip hop really worked. It's so funny. And you guys were almost, you guys, this was before your engagement party, but you were like on your way to getting married. Oh, we'd been never... together for four or five years at that point. And you're, you dropped the money mic on me. I'm like, where? what are you talking about? I thought you were teasing me. Yes, that was so... You thought I was they, making it up. Yeah, so I mean, I can only imagine you have many more stories. I do, but th- I got to say, none are going to sort of have that high level of surprise. All right, you're, <laughs> there's been breaking news today and you have to go soon, so let's just get right into it. Um, here's, a, here's where I want to start. So everybody who knows you talks about how smart you are. Oh, so there, nice. There are, yes, but no, this is the thing, right? And it's interesting, in your job, because your job isn't con- like a, hard, a lot of the time, half the time, isn't hard news or hard journalism... I think it's easy for people to think that the most important characteristics are your ability to make a connection with people, to be engaging, to be a good listener. But what the people who know about you well know is like you're a deep thinker and you're somebody who has a big toolkit up there. And so what I'm interested in is when did you recognize that about yourself? And like, did you show it to your peers when you were a kid? Like, how did you start to realize, oh, I see things a little bit differently? Well, that's such an interesting question because then I have to accept the premise, right? I have to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. And I don't, you know, I've, that makes me feel awkward because I would not want to say, oh, yes, I'm just so smart. But I, but I'm grown up enough to say I, I know I've been blessed with the ability to do well in school. And, you know, so I, how about this? The ability to, how about this? Let me phrase it in a way that doesn't (laughs) seem like it's a characteristic like smart. Okay. How about if I say this? You have the ability to process a great amount of information and synthesize it quickly and come up with certain conclusions about it that might not be the ones everybody else would. When did you realize you were able to grasp things in a different way? And then did that make you feel different from your peers? Did you try to hide it or did you like lean into it? No, I definitely, first of all, as a kid, I didn't feel particularly smart. I mean, I think my parents were always encouraging to me and my siblings and they treated us like we were smart and would say, you guys are smart kids, but it more like, you're smart kids. Why did you get a D in geometry? Right. That would be the full sentence. So I definitely did not feel superior or feel different than my friends. I felt the same as my friends. And in fact, I wasn't that much of a student, uh, particularly in high school. As a little kid, I think I was a decent student. But just I, it's just not anything I ever thought about. And to be honest, it wasn't until I went to law school that... I 
realized, okay, wait, maybe, you know, maybe I can really hang with like the big boys here. I, I went to law school having been out of school for five or six years. I went to Georgetown and I had gone to the University of Arizona undergrad, which is a great school, but that's where I grew up. It's a, you know, I didn't even apply anywhere else. And suddenly now, five years later, I'm 27, I'm at Georgetown, and I was really intimidated. And, you know, tons of people had come from Harvard and Yale and all these fancy schools that I had heard of. And I think the process of going to law school and being in those classes and then doing well in school and getting good grades when it is graded on a curve that suddenly that helped it it helped me find some confidence that wait a minute okay i i'm as smart as these kids are and that's really honestly the first time i really thought about it in those terms wait, why weren't you a good student do you think like what was it like growing up in your house so your your parents said those they treated you well in that way yes. or and they always spoke to us as adults. As like, adults, see, we weren't, there was not baby talk or even the subject matter was, my dad was a very deep thinker. He, in, in what area, like what was he interested well, in? Well, he just was a complicated soul and he didn't shy away from deeper and more complex topics. He's also very spiritual and very, sometimes could be almost kind of dark and aware of his own shortcomings and You picked it up even as a little, those. you picked that up oh, even yeah. as a little kid. yeah. Definitely. So I, I think I wasn't really into school. As a little kid, sure, because what else are you going to do? And then in high school, I just didn't care. I kind of slacked off. And there was all kinds of stuff going on in my, with my family. My, you know, my father died when I was high school, in high school. And there's just, just different things going on. And I think my parents were just so overwhelmed. I don't think they had the energy to say, like, why didn't you do your schoolwork? Or why did you not go to class? And why do they keep calling and saying, you weren't there today when you were supposed oh, to be. Wait, is that true? Did you cut? Like, would you? Oh, I cut would, class all the time. I had thirty-five unexcused absences. I think my junior or senior year. Why do you? I think? actually got was suspended it? for absences, which is ironic if you think about it. Yeah. Stop missing school now. Miss more yeah, school. Yeah, but now we're taking you yeah. out of school. <laughs> yeah. But also because you have now like have a job that literally requires has the strictest re attendance requirements of like any oh, job in the I world. and I mean, I never call in sick. Right. No. Never. I hardly take vacation. I was. I actually did have to call in sick. A few weeks ago, having spent 10 days hacking up lungs on the set where Matt was basically begging me, like, you, you are sick. Don't, why are you here? And when I finally called in sick, he said on the air, well, Savannah finally waved the white flag of surrender. Yeah. So I'm a little good. different. I think it was just immaturity and I don't know. I just didn't. What were you doing with your time? So like. Smoking. Like, because you're right. Good. And the chat's just smoking Sitting in the, the girls' Carl's room the whole Jr. time. Sitting Jr. with my friends, drinking coffee, talking, smoking, that kind of thing. It's so interesting because like your engagement with the world now is so intense. Were you not curious about the world then? Or did you, were you not just aware of it? Like what? Because when you made the decision that you were going to go to law school and, and Amy told me on the way here, my wife, Amy, who's also friends with Savannah, Amy told me on the way here that it was in college that suddenly you really became this great student. Do you remember what clicked? Like what happened that made you go, oh, no, no, this stuff now matters to me. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a confluence of things. First of all, about halfway through college, I really needed to pick a major. I mean, I had, I was a business major, but that was just because I was a placeholder and I didn't know what else to put in. But by the time you're in your junior year, you got to start taking the classes that are going to end up being your major. So I remember thinking, gosh, what am I going to do? And my mom suggested journalism, partly because she had had actually her master's in journalism. And secondly, because she said, I'm not paying for a communications degree. She thought it was like a floaty 
you know, non-useful, non-relevant kind of thing. Sorry to any other liberal arts communications majors, but she just thought... No, it can be a great degree, but then sometimes it's also like you can watch um, the Rose Bowl and like three quarters of the players, their majors, communication. And I think she said, she said, journalism, at least you learn a, a trade. A, a skill. A, a skill, exactly. And so I started taking journalism classes and enjoyed it and did well at it and was encouraged by my professors. They liked my writing. So, and I could go cover things that were complicated and I enjoyed boiling them down to simpler terms. So on one hand, I was getting some encouragement back from something I was trying and I liked that. You didn't get a lot of that in high school? I didn't really try. I mean, there were a few things. I don't want to totally make myself look like a complete loser, but I just, it wasn't my focus. In high school, my no, focus was like friends. it's not even like a loser thing. And, I'm just always so interested in yeah. the awakening. I'm just always so interested in how people, because I was a bad student too, and I, I, uh, I was really good in English classes, like, because I yeah, loved them. Right. But I, I was really bad in math classes because I didn't care at all. Yeah. But I'm always interested in the moments, like, because sometimes people listening have been told that they've started to feel dumb because of the fact that they didn't do well at a certain time. Well, it's kind of funny because it was two things going on. Number one, like I said, the journalism was going well and I was starting to feel encouraged and just interested in something. Whereas before I could just mail it in and kind of half-ass it. Can we say yes. that on the podcast? Yes, and, and, you and, you know, I would do fine, enough to get by. And I didn't really care to challenge myself. By the way, a parlor trick that we play at dinner is to try to get Savannah to curse. Yeah. Even, <laughs> it's not that There's not a lot of cursing no, going no, on. No, no, well, I wish that were the case. Anyway, so um, the other thing is I had this boyfriend, and he was a little older, and he had gone to Berkeley, and he was actually, I think I was like a sophomore, junior, and he was already out of college. And he was kind of, in retrospect, a little snobby. And I remember one time saying something about how, how smart I thought my father was, because by the way, my father was very smart. And I remember him kind of laughing indicating like, oh, everyone thinks their father's smart or something. And in some way, I felt like he was dogging my family or our, in some ways, it kind of made me mad. And I don't know, I think part of that was from that moment on, I really wanted to, you know, prove that I could do anything, that I could hang, you know, that I was just as smart as anybody else. It made me, it was all, that wasn't, I don't want to give him so much credit as to say that was a turning point in my life, but that, I remember that. And I actually, thinking of my dad, he used to always say, smart is what smart does. You know, he never wanted to hear excuses or why you didn't do things. They had very high expectations of us. So even though I did slack off a little bit, it wasn't like they didn't care I think they just were exasperated. When is this kid going to pull it together? She can do better. So it was kind of right then that I just, it, it all kind of. It's so college. interesting what gives us the fuel. It's, it's so embarrassing. I hate of, to give him the credit, that stupid ex-boyfriend. Yeah, but it, obviously that was like, a, as you said, a culmination of sort of, pe- things only have power if um, when they echo a secret fear that you have. Mm-hmm. Right when they echo some idea that you've had in the back of your head about your potential, and maybe that just made you realize, oh, shoot, I have to now. Now I have to go do the work. Like yes. now I have to actually go. I knew this day was going to come. Yes, time to grow up. Now I have to do it. You know what? It is. It's not enough to skate by on your potential. There comes a time when potential is not impressive anymore. If you're like eighty, nobody says, you know, she has great potential. That's sad. You're just like, you're 80 and you never did anything with your life. And I think that that moment was kind of, 
in your teens, it's great to say you have potentials. She's smart. Too bad she didn't do anything. You know, by the time you're getting into college and you're going to have to get a job, time to actually it show up for life. On, it can start to weigh on yeah. you. Yeah. So I think all of those things. And then the more I got encouraged in journalism, the more I wanted to do it. And then I got really into getting a job and work and was completely focused. And that was probably the beginning the of the Savannah, but, you know. <laughs> but, but also, can we just pause for a second to talk about what how jerky it is to say about somebody's father who just died a couple years yeah. earlier he wasn't that smart i know did you i hope you just broke up with him no of course i didn't are you kidding that's a whole other podcast yeah. of like oh, all my I, lame relationships yeah but you that would have been the moment i think I you just go go oh and also and i'm gonna think... go become savannah guthrie and also goodbye <laughs> exactly. i'll see goodbye and, and how's that working out for you yeah. no but i know i think it just kind of hurt my feelings i don't even think i called him on it because it wasn't overt he didn't say your father's dumb it was just he sort of i think he was dismissive when and that, that really ticked me off. When like Taylor Swift comes and does an outdoor concert next time, if that guy has a daughter, you yeah. should totally like, <laughs> like just let him come and just stand right outside the <laughs> exactly, window. Exactly. And you can just wave as Taylor's playing for his daughter. Yeah. Just be like, bye. I'm like, see, you should have been a little nicer to me. That's exactly right. <laughs> so when you decided, okay, this journalism thing, do you, did you have like a secret dream of where it would all lead back then? A little. I had the seed of a dream. I definitely didn't think TV. What did you think? I, what um, was the seed of the dream? I would. My dream right then in college was to be a magazine writer like Newsweek or Time. I, and I was very interested in Washington and campaigns. Even then, I was really into the 92 campaign, which I think I was a junior in college then. And I liked reading you know, the Washington Post, which by the way, this is, there was no internet then. <laughs> really, oh, right. There really Barely. wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I loved reading all those news magazines and I kind of loved the idea of, of being a And you didn't think writer. of yourself then as somebody who was going to be on camera? No, not at all. And in fact, the only reason I got into TV is because I've always had a part-time job. That's one thing. I haven't been a slacker in terms of work because I've, I've had a job since I was 14 years old, all through high school, all through college. And about... I guess my second year of college, I got a job part-time on the student crew at the local PBS station. And so it was a behind the scenes, the prompter, the camera. But for your job, you weren't cutting. You were always showing up and doing the work. Yeah, it was just, and so that got me kind of interested in, oh, how does broadcasting work? Because they put on a daily news show. And so that's how I got into TV, learned about that. So I ended up working there three years in college. And by the end, between the journalism and watching what was going on at that TV station, I convinced them, can I do, I pitched a story, can I do it, I put it together. And that's how I got on the TV road. It was and, actually really through the job, not through school. I never took a broadcast class. And, and did you did you think then that then that was the road you were on? Like, did you think, oh, I can become a national journalist? Or were you just motivated by telling the story? Like, what was the, how did you start to think about, oh, I have to support myself in life, I have to go do this? Like, how did you start thinking about career? Because... Then you went to law school and I think had this incredibly interesting choice. But here in those first couple of years out of college, how were you thinking about it? I was thinking mainly I want to get a job. I need a job. I'm sure at that point I would have dreamed to be Joan London or Katie Couric or any of those things, but I didn't. You wouldn't have given voice to that to a Absolutely friend. not. And it would have been just that, a dream, the biggest pipe dream, like saying you want to play in the NBA. In a thousand years, I wouldn't have thought that was possible for me. But I did try to get a job in local news and sent my tapes around and, you know, ended up getting a job in Butte, Montana was my first job. Have I ever told you this story? Tell it. Um, so I, I moved everything I had. I had no money. It paid $12,000 a year. How old are you at this time? 20 or 21. Right out of college. Right out of college. I think I was about to turn 21. 
Anyway, just out of college, I move up. They hire me sight unseen. I go, <laughs> I'm in, moved to Butte. I'm there for not even two weeks. There's a newsroom staff of four, of which I was one. I was hired to anchor the weekends and report three days a week and shoot and edit all my own stuff. Classic, they call it a one-man band. And the second, I hadn't even anchored one weekend yet. They called a staff meeting. Again, hilarious because there weren't that many staff. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But this might have included sales and the the, the secretaries or whatever. But um, they announced we're closing the station. And of course, I was devastated. Because you're in Butte, Montana now with all your stuff. I spent all my money to get up there. I had all my stuff. My friends had thrown me a going away party. Like, oh, go get them. You know, two weeks later, I'm back. I was just devastated. And as sort of rinky-dink as that job was, I knew I was so lucky to get it. As you were saying it, I was thinking, what an incredible opportunity that you were going to get to be on the air two days a week and make your own stories. I mean, that would have taught you everything you needed to know about being a journalist, like a broadcast journalist. getting into a small market, a Getting into any local news market on air is probably the hardest job you're ever going to get. The first, right, because everybody out of doing yes. any one of those programs yes. wants that job. And e- you can't get a job without on-air experience. And that first job, that's exactly what you're doing. You really don't have on-air experience. And they're hiring you based on some tape that you cobbled together. So I, of course, was just shattered. Uh, so what'd you do? So I moved back home, truly was a week or two later. And I thought right then and there about just giving up on this stupid dream. I had been looking for a job maybe six or nine months at that point, And this was my big chance. And I thought, you know, I had friends who had done more normal things and they'd, they were in PR or they'd go work for a company and, you know, they're making okay money and they had a car or they had, all, and I was like, what am I doing? Why am I trying to be this TV reporter? I could just get a more normal job. But I decided, well, I'll send a few more tapes out and just see what happens. And then I'll kind of revisit. And I ended up getting another job offer within a week or two, really fast. Whereas before I'd been toiling and sent every day I would go to the post office, spend all this money on postage, make these little tapes, send them off with my cover letter, my resume, and nothing. And half the time you wouldn't hear a thing. And then boom, it happened. And then it happened again. Where was this job? This was in Columbia, Missouri. And so I went there and it was great. And I stayed there two years and it really was my first job. And it was a much better opportunity than Butte, Montana. Wait, this makes me think of something. Um, when you said the thing about your friends, like what, um, cause now in your job, you are, and I've seen the way people in the world, women often react to you, which is like, you're their best friend. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like, what role would you play in your friend group when you were in college or just after college? Like, That's funny. Well, it depended on which friends. I had friends I made in college, and sometimes they come by now, you know, sorority sisters, and, you know, they haven't seen me since then. And they think of me as quite studious and motivated because by the time they met me, I was. Right, right. You know, I mean, I was... I was in the sorority, but, you know, I couldn't go to this meeting or that meeting because I had a job and yeah. I paid my own dues, literally right, paid. you were know, working. Yeah. Right. Like their parents paid for it. I paid mine. And, you know, I was just always the very hardworking kind of focused Were you the person. friend who would like, would you know everything that was like, as a journalist, like were the roots of that? Did you know, like the thing I ended up becoming makes sense to people who knew me in a weird way, even if, before I realized it later, they were like, well, of course you would have done all this stuff. Like... 
Were you um, the per- like? Did you know what was going on with all of them? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Were you and I mean, curious I was, in that way. Oh, definitely. And I always had the kind of friendships where it's like you'd go and have a glass of wine or a coffee and sit and talk about all your problems. Right. And, you'd be the one people would dump their problems. Oh, hundred percent. I was completely into it, and my I dumped my problems on them too. But also fun. I always had a lot of I had a lot of fun in college. But I still, like I said, with that was definitely the time I got focused. So you you go and you get this job. And you you were really digging it? Like, did you like doing it? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was hard because, first of all, it's just hard work and I'm learning and, you know, you're so insecure. And we had, you just had, we didn't have any. Insecure about what? Am I any good at this? Really? Do I know how to do this? Oh, yes. And I mean, if you could see tapes from that time, you would not say, oh, this person's going to go somewhere. That thing holds a lot of people back, right? A lot of people, that fear of like, what if I'm not good enough? What if I can't really do this? Yeah. Stops them from doing it? Like, yeah. What do you think it is that made you have that stuff, but be able to take the next step? I think, I, I have to think it must have been, first of all, I had definitely have all of those insecurities and that has been shot through everything I do. It's not like, I mean, even Still? today, I don't, think, oh, I've got this down. I mean, I've obviously grown up and after you've done something for 20 or 25 years, you know, I'm not a crazy person. So I have some inner confidence and calm, but I can still be nervous about things. I still, if there's a big interview or something I'm a little worried about, I'll say a prayer beforehand. I mean, I definitely, yeah. but well, in I was going to say, did your faith help you then? Yeah. I mean, I think it always helps. Um, but and, and it, it was there then. Now. Yes, definitely. But um yeah, I mean, I would be nervous. And then I had, a, I mean, I was a constant theme. You're going to crack up about this. Constant theme from my early years in television, and not just in Missouri, but also in Tucson, where I ended up going, was how my hair looked terrible on TV. Really? And you laugh. It's the, the worst. It was the worst. And it's, first because of all, why? Were you doing it, it did yourself? look terrible. Of course I was doing it myself. I was doing it myself until I came to the Today Show. I did it myself as NBC when White you were House correspondent. At the White House, you were doing Correct. it yourself? Yes. And I could never make my hair look right or look normal. And I mean, my poor baby has my same hair and she looks, in, her hair is insane. She's a, stop it now. She's adorable. Oh my gosh. She's the greatest yes. and cutest baby ever. But I, when I look at her hair, I laugh. I think that was my hair oh, like forever. Funny. I'm going to help you more than... Then I, got got, then I got help. But anyway, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I can remember one of my first meetings with my boss in Missouri, her saying, you know, you're doing, you're doing a great job and, you know, you're, you're a good reporter and your writing is good and you're coming along learning to edit and all that. Um, we just need to do something about this hair. You know, and, of oh, course and that was your seat. You were oh, mortified. Mortified. And then the other thing is, is that. As weird as it sounds, I I definitely had more confidence, if any, in my intellectual abilities, my writing abilities, anything that was based on substance. I was, and probably still am, totally insecure about my looks. That's the irony of why I would choose a profession that accentuates looks so much. It's like I'm simultaneously torturing myself, but also clearly looking for some kind of affirmation that- Do you still feel- Yeah. That I could be on television, but so so on the one hand you're on it, but the second, but the the flip side is it's to put yourself on TV is just to absolutely invite criticism of every part of you, your clothes, your outfit, your voice, your hair, your everything. So why would I do that? That's just crazy. Do you hear? You mean so you you hear the criticism? You, it, uh, yeah, it that's you? the thing. It's not, and and I, everyone's different. But I never said I want to be on TV because. 
darn, I think I look so good. I mean, the opposite couldn't be more opposite. So it just is funny that it just killed me when she said that about my hair. And then another time in Tucson, <laughs> they, my hair was such a continuing problem and struggle that the news director, and now that now I'm in a decent sized market, this is like a professional organization. The news director, a man, literally took me to the hair salon to sit to, to like meet with the hairdresser and say, look, what can you do? I, I have to find pictures of that. Oh, I can't yes. even understand. And let me fast forward to even at NBC. This is funny. I won't name names. But when I was at the White House. And just starting at the t- just starting, so I wasn't quite at the White House full time, but a high level person at NBC sent me an email out of the blue. We got to do something about your wardrobe. I mean, and I can remember crying about this because I just I was like, what What does that mean? And then I wrote back, okay, what do you uh, What do you mean? What do you Can you be more specific? And then of course this person never wrote back, so I was just there left I'm to so twist in the wind. I'm so picturing a certain bald person, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> I won't make you say a name, but I have a sense of who it might be. Oh, this is a whole tangent of crazy, but I mean, t- but, yes. But what did it? But so you still feel like um, you're being largely judged every day on what you? Well, I mean, definitely. The only good thing is that now. Again, A, I'm older, so I just the, your amount of caring about stuff like this and what people yeah, think is just now. on a complete yeah. trajectory downward. Like, I just don't care. But second of all, there's a te- an army, really, of people that fix my hair and makeup every day. Yes. Thank goodness. I mean, they could – don't tell anyone. They could pay me – Half, if, as long as I just get my hair blow dry. I was going to say, yeah, don't, don't have, don't run veil through all that though, and get her used to that. I know, you know, she I'm, can't get used to I'm that. I'm just it. kidding, but it is hilarious. Like that's one thing that all women understand. They'll say, like, wait, so, so someone blow dries your hair every day? I'm like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. No, it's a gigantic, yeah, obviously, like, like huge, a gigantic big deal. Big perk. No, of course, on the <laughs> show that I work on, you see, it's. Oh. I mean, every single person. I mean, not me because I'm not on camera. Yeah. But every single person goes through the works. And I, you wonder if people know at home, understand yeah. that this is what happens. Yeah, like we they, can show up like this. But, but yeah. But the thing is, because the other thing that people say about you, the people who know you, is they all talk about like when you host Meet the Press, everyone talks about the amount of work you'll do. <laughs> like the sheer amount of just effort you'll put in to researching, thinking about, testing your thesis is against other ideas like that you take the part of the job that's not the uh, superficial part of the job incredibly seriously. And that's what a third of, like let's say a day on the Today Show, a third of the stories are like sort of human interest or whatever. And then there's you and you guys all talking, but then a third of it is really important, hard news mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Knowing you, I think that is what, you know, there's nothing we can bring up at dinner that you haven't thought about about all this. I mean, you're all over it. And I'm wondering, did that passion and the way that that your interest in this stuff grow? When, How did it sort of manifest in you this like, okay, it's actually a a giant responsibility Mm -hmm. that I have? Well, it's definitely, I'm obviously very interested in the subject matter. And usually we're talking about politics because that's most likely going to be the subject area that we pour that much time in. Although occasionally we've done, I mean, I've done interviews with criminal defendants that I've just completely poured over and tried to really think through. And it's been fun actually, because, you know, you and I are recovering lawyers. We get to like exercise that part of our brains. But, you know, as much as I jokingly or joke about being a slacker in high school, whenever I made the turn and started to get focused, then I worked really hard. And 
I was very much driven and probably still am driven by fear of failure more than anything else. And that sounds like, I mean, I'm not a basket case. It's just that I don't want to be caught unprepared. And so when I was in law school, I studied hard. And when I studied for the bar, I treated it like well, a yeah, job. Famously, you finished first in the state bar. Like a big dork, because that's a pass-fail test. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. so who's who should have had more fun that summer? You know, it's ridiculous. I mean, but I... but. Part of it is like you want to rely on whatever natural abilities you hope you have, but that is not near enough. I would never just coast by on that and think I could wing it. I would never think that. I always want to study really hard and be prepared and think through everything because my nightmare is to be caught unprepared or having not thought about something. And if you want to do these jobs well, I mean, if you want to go on Meet the Press and you want to go toe-to-toe with someone, if you want to have a candidate on your air for an interview on the Today Show, and you really want to ask more than the boilerplate, great, go for it. But you better know your stuff. You better be able to parry their answer back. Big time, and you better know it 10 levels down. You better think not just what their response is, but then what the counter-argument is and what the argument to that is. And that's kind of what I do. That's why my husband jokes, he hates it when I fill in and meet the press, because he's like, I'm like, slide food under the door. Yes. See in three days. But part of it is... Part of it's studying, part of it's making calls, trying to learn as much as I can. And then part of it is just sitting there and thinking about how an interview might go. If I ask this question, he or she will answer this way. And the best response to that is this. But then that person could say, and I find that really interesting because I'm interested in all the different arguments. Right, playing the whole game out in your head, all the different possible scenarios. Yes. And then knowing where you could go with that. Yeah, and who has the stronger argument? I mean, that's how you figure out oh, they've got some good points there, you know? Yeah, law school must have helped you sort of figuring out how to anticipate the direction of these arguments. I think it does. But don't you think it's funny? I mean, in law school, there's always that cliche, we're going to teach you how to think like a lawyer. I mean, I never took that think like a lawyer class. I'm not sure that I do. But somehow through osmosis or through the process or reading cases or think, you do sort of absorb Well, the best and worst thing about it, and I never practiced, but the best and worst thing about it to me is somehow you learn right away how to see both sides of an argument at Mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah. And that does happen. That is the think like a lawyer thing, which is great, but it's not so great when Amy, my wife, is telling me about someone who was did something wrong. And I just am immediately, even though I'm on her side, I'm immediately thinking of the arguments the on the other side. Me too. And if you say it out loud, it's a mistake. Yeah, the, you do not do that in a in a relationship. In your relationship argument. It's do a not mistake to say <laughs> it out loud. I know. Do not do the Socratic method at home. Do not no, try it's it. Bad. It's miserable. But it is true, and actually I find it helpful in covering politics. I mean, first of all, I say this with trepidation because if you're out in the political arena interviewing candidates, guaranteed there's people on both sides who think the fix is in with you on either side. I mean, I'm constantly it's clear being that it's not. accused. I can tell you, I really, I don't have an agenda. I'm very middle of the road. I am interested in who has the better of the argument. Very interested. Well, what you, and sometimes one side or the other does have a better argument. Well, I've said this to Halperin and to Heilman and our, a bunch of our friends said it to Chuck too. Um, sometimes it seems to me that there is a moral demand that a journalist isn't only objective Mm -hmm. and isn't only stating um, sort of what the conventional wisdom is, but is probing in a way that forces the candidate to actually reveal themselves. Yeah. And I've seen you do that in this past 
six months. It seems like you've, you know, tried really hard to, without stating what side of the question you're on, but making, I mean, I'll just say, you know, you've asked Trump really hard questions, I think, in a way that you're, you're trying to hold him accountable for what his actual opinion is and like the truth. Yeah. And I hopefully would do that for either side. I mean, I, I've had some tough interviews with Trump. I mean, I had a really tough town hall with Hillary Clinton over the emails. I mean, it, it was, yes. it got pretty heated. Yes. And I can assure you they were not thrilled with me. So I really do try. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying you choosing yes. Hillary. I'm not in any way saying you're choosing yeah. Hillary Clinton, but I am saying that watching the show, it does seem to me uh, that you're, it seems to me watching that you're aware Trump isn't a regular candidate playing by regular rules. And I'll, I'll say this for Trump. I mean, he will do interviews all day long. And so he's not a regular candidate in that sense either. He's accessible, you know, and he will get on the phone with you and you can ask him the questions. He's like all candidates in that he doesn't always answer them. And Hillary Clinton, same thing, doesn't always answer them. But, um, but what do you think of as your obligation is, I guess, what I'm really yeah. asking. In other words, who are you asking the questions for? Who's I, the viewer? Yeah. Who? I'm trying to ask the question for the viewer at home who has a question that they're they're throwing the brick at the TV wishing would be asked. And I try, and I really do think about this, I try to make sure my motivations and my heart are sincere. Am I sincerely trying to get to the truth or or, or draw out You mean as opposed to argument? being sensationalistic? Yeah, or trying to make myself look like a big deal. Right. You know, I really don't want to do that. I want to do interesting, lively interviews. I don't want to do a C-SPAN interview. I don't want to elicit their talking points because I don't think that does any favors. And I also, whenever I feel like, oh gosh, I think I'm going to have to really go in hard on this issue, I do believe that if you have a good argument, you should want to be asked the hardest question because it will draw out the strength of your response. And then you've made an even stronger argument. It's one thing to say, I came in, I want to make points A, B, and C. Okay, maybe you have a good argument. But what if everyone at home is thinking, aha, but what about D? Then you never ask that. Your argument's not as strong. If someone asked that counter question, and now you hit that one out of the park, you've really had an opportunity to advocate for your position. So I do look at a challenging question as an opportunity for the person who's being interviewed. Doesn't always work out that way, but sometimes it does. I mean, there's plenty of times either I've asked a question or I heard, was watching an interview and saw someone ask a hard question and the other person just knock it out of the park. Thought, oh, good, interesting. Yes. You've convinced me. Sure, either way. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, actually, you don't have the grounding in this yes. that you're pretending to. Yes. And so you get that out of them. Either thing is valuable. Yeah. How do you, how do you figure out what your audience is hoping that you'll ask. How do you? Well, that is subjective, you know, because, yeah. and, and actually, I think our politics are so polarized now, and I'm sure mm -hmm. they always have been, but that notion of this middle of the road person who's sitting at home wanting to just genuinely hear both sides and make a decision, that's a vanishing that person little person. <laughs> right. Because frankly, so many people have a point of view. They want to hear their point of view echoed back to them. Now, the way our media is set up, they can do that. There's You don't have to listen to just three networks, which you know one could argue whether or not those were ever unbiased. I mean, you could. there's a fair argument there. But I, I guess if I'm thinking about what the average viewer, I'm imagining a viewer 
who has an open mind and really wants to just see who, who's who got the most persuasive When argument. you engage with people, your fans in the world, as you're going through, do you talk to them about this stuff? Do they ever bring it up or are they really? Generally, no. I mean, there's Twitter, but that is not representative no, at all, not. as I'm sure you're active on Twitter, so you know. Um, Twitter's a place for advocates. And so I just get a ton of that. And I do, I don't, I try to look at it, and I don't block it, even when people are mean to me or nasty. No one should be mean to you. You're a very kind person. You don't <laughs> but, deserve it. But sometimes they really are, don't. and I do try. I people say, "Why do you look at that?" or "Why don't you just block that person?" I would never block someone who just criticized me because I should hear the criticism, and maybe I'll learn something, and maybe they have a point. So I want to keep my mind open. But, but to mostly, it. you're actually not. You're not serving to figure this stuff out. You're relying on like your instinct and just being a person in yes. the world. Yes. To sort of figure out what is important to check in with. And I'm sure you're talking to your producers too. Yeah, and and then also some of the just basic principles of journalism that you're thinking, well, what's new here? This person has been asked this question 18 times. How can I slice it in a thinner way or make the question so narrowly drawn and focused that they can't sliver out of it? I'm going to back up for a second because I want to make sure to get to this because it's at the heart of sort of like why I even started doing this podcast, which is, you know, your story of... So first, why'd you decide to go to law school? And then I I want you to tell the story, which I know you've told in in pieces, but I really want you to tell the story of the, of when you were on the precipice of taking the clerkship and what happened. Because I think it's a real story about somebody recognizing what their North Star is and then deciding to chase it. So could you just talk through that, that whole chain of events from deciding to go to law school and what you felt and the job you could have had and all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, this is... That whole time period kind of starts with the decision to go to law school and then the decision to reject my legal career. Yeah. <laughs> $150,000 yeah. later. Well, yeah, four years, blood, sweat, and tears. But yeah, and, th- and being a superstar. I mean, I know you're not coming, but you were a superstar at it. So, like, you would, you were number one in the bar and number one in your law school or number whatever, close to number one in your law school <laughs> and getting a job that nobody gets to get. So, yeah, walk us through that whole so thing. So I, when I start, decided to go to law school, I'd been in local news for five or six years at that point, and I knew it was time to move on to the next station, which would have been in a bigger market, and that's kind of the local news trajectory. Small market, medium market, big market, and if you're and really, really national. lucky, network, which is just like hitting the lottery. So I was in a medium market, thinking about going to a bigger market, and I was just kind of just bored of local news and kind of over the whole dog up a tree thing, and... So I was just not really sure. I had covered a bunch of trials and gotten really interested in legal issues along the way, being in journalism. And so I decided I'm going to take the LSAT. This was in December of 1998. My contract was not up for another year or so. So I I was like, I'm not going to apply to any law schools because I'm still under contract, but I will just take the LSAT. The scores are good for three years. And then I'll see what I can get in TV. And if I don't like it, I got this in my back pocket. What did you think you would maybe do? I don't know. It was just, it was like, here's a good little backup plan. Sure. I'll do it. No harm, sure. no foul. It's annoying to go to take the yeah. class and take the test, but I'll do it. And then I have an option. I'm just preserving options. So I take the test. I do well enough that all the deadlines pass. It's January. Then it's February. I guess February of 1999. Out of the blue, I receive a letter from Georgetown University. Now, I had been an intern on Capitol Hill when I was in college, and I lived in a Georgetown dorm, but I loved the whole notion of Georgetown. The campus was so beautiful. Sure. The East Coast was so magical to me coming from the okay. desert. Arizona, yeah. The whole, you know, it was just like, oh, I just thought the whole thing was really cool. 
So I, Georgetown was always in the back of my mind, like, maybe I could go to Georgetown someday. So I get this letter out of the blue from Georgetown University Law Center saying, we all, our deadline has passed, but we invite you to apply. To this day, I'm really not sure how. how that happened. I know you don't believe in the good Lord above. I do. I don't yes. know. But anyway, also then, and some dean who, I don't know, all they had at that point would have you had- You think God wrote you the letter? Yeah, I do. I think God wrote. No, but, you know, not not literally. But, you know, they would have only had my college GPA, which was good. But again, University of Arizona, and my LSAT score, which was very good, but it wasn't, you know, a perfect score. It wasn't 100% or something. But it was I strong. I wasn't Doogie Hauser right. of, of the LSAT. Anyway, I got this letter. I thought, oh, this is, I, I think I have to apply, you know? Sure. So I threw together an application in a couple of weeks, got my references, the whole thing, sent it off. And three weeks later, now it's March, I got in. Only school I applied to. Amazing. Now I have a- One of, just people listening don't know, I mean, one of the best law schools in the country, like a top 10 law school always. Yeah, yeah so it's just, like, it just amazing. So I then had the decision, what do I do? I mean, this is for fall 1999. I still have my contract. Should I go to law school? Should I tell my bosses I want out of my deal? Am I done with TV? So I'm just completely hemming and hawing and not sure how to make this decision. And this was a seminal moment of my life, number one. I went and talked to someone who was kind of a professor, mentor, friend of mine, and I was giving him the, well, I don't know if I'm done with TV, but I this is an opportunity. I may not get this again. What should I do? If I get out of TV now, I'll never get back in again. And what if I regret it? Because, you know, I can't sit out in law school for three years and expect to get back into TV. So he said, Savannah, 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 think big. And I don't know why that little bumper sticker phrase meant so much to me in that moment, but it did. Because all of a sudden, I left and I started thinking, what does that mean, think big? What does that mean for me? That's great. If I were to think big for myself, I've all, I couldn't even articulate to myself what my big dream in life was because I was em- embarrassed to say, afraid it would never happen, didn't think I was good enough. I wouldn't even have – it was always there, but I wouldn't even look at it because I was so – What I, was it? So I thought, what does it mean, Savannah, for you to think big? What's your biggest dream? If you could dream your biggest dream. And I thought, okay, it would be to be a legal correspondent at a network. And that led me to my answer, which was, okay, then take the first step. You're going to need to go to law school. And so I did. And I knew that maybe... I would, you know, not ever get back into TV, so I had to be at peace with myself. If I end up leaving TV and I'm on the lawyer path, then I have to be satisfied and happy with that. And I made myself imagine that life and what would it look like and would I like to be a trial lawyer? Yeah, I think I would. And I made myself do all that, but I also thought, if that's my biggest dream, if that's my think big, get on the road and go. And that's how I decided to go to law school. How old were you? Uh, 27. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. It, I mean, that's an amazing, like, sort of uh, to allow yourself that, I mean, that's what we're trying to get at, get at about even when you were younger, did you have a secret dream? I mean, you did, I, in a way. Yeah, at some point that little dream was percolating. But, but you wouldn't even let yourself really own it. Certainly would never say it out loud, but to me, the biggest point of that story is I didn't say it inside to myself. Right, you didn't let yourself know. No, I didn't really. Right. And not to That's say, awesome. I want to see if I could actually do this. I mean, everybody says like, oh, I wish I could do this or that. It was like to say, no, I would like to try. Those so, moments are the best. As soon as you have that kind of clarity, it does allow you to go in that direction. Yeah, and 
And honestly, I always tell people, if you have that moment of clarity, don't let it pass you by. Go right then and do it because it won't always be with you. I mean, I wouldn't today, I don't even know if I'd have the guts to do that again. I don't know. Things change so much. It's just like a moment in time. And if you have well, now that you have a lot to bolt, lose in the world. Yeah, you have a you're family. Older, and yeah, my, there's all kinds of there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Though I when you have those blinding moments of insight, you have to, even if you're older. Yes. You have to find a way, I think. Yeah. I mean, we were joking before about someone 80, but like the way people the world is now, if someone is an 80-year-old, I mean, my dad's 76 years old and still working. And last week, he um, he and a, a guy named Londell McMillan together are, got this gig. They're managing the Prince Estate. Wow. And like he's 76. <laughs> And I looked at him, he was like, well, why wouldn't I do this? I like, love that I love he's not resting stuff. on his laurels. Yeah, he's like, I love this stuff. And I was with him this weekend, and it's like, he didn't need this in his life right now. <laughs> By the way, that's could... not an uncomplicated affair. No, I mean, <laughs> he's no, he's doing all, and, and it's mind-blowing. I mean, I, I had the real thought, like, I hope when I'm 76, yeah. I'll still chase stuff. I'll still be like... Well, this seems like it will be really occupy my days in a fascinating yeah. way. I'm going to go take it on. Totally. Or be at peace with not doing. I mean, I'm I'm big on just be at peace with wherever you are. I mean, if I feel like I just want to, I put the pedal to the metal for the first 45 years of my 100%. life. And the next, I want to just be happy and love on my baby, soon to be babies and yes. my husband and family. Like I'm cool with that too. I well, just want to. That's the idea that hits you. Yes. Then that's the idea that I hits you. I just want to accept with grace whatever is meant Here, to be. I know we don't have much more time, but keep, I want you to keep. Oh yes. Okay. So then, all right, fast forward. So I go to law school. We already talked about that a little bit. Yeah. You love it. Yeah. I, I did. I mean, love and hate, you know, like anything. And then I was working for a law firm and I had this clerkship lined up with a federal judge, which is... I mean, you talk about what a big... I mean, that's uh, um, basically a, in the legal profession, if you're interested in being any kind of an academic in the law or sort of like going deep into the legal profession, there is a bunch of like kind of winnowing stages. And one of them is out of law school, a year out of law school, or do you get a clerkship, which means you work with um, a federal judge, an appeals court judge, or then a Supreme Court judge and now justice. And often now what happens is somebody, the road to clerking for a Supreme Court justice is to clerk for a federal judge, yes. which is an opportunity you had for an important federal judge. Yeah, federal judge in Washington. It was all set up. And these judges hire, it's hilarious, they hire like two years in advance. And no one, if you get offered the job, you say yes. No one turns it you down. You can't turn that job There's down. no turning it down. It's like, yes, great. Okay. So I had that lined up um, for, I guess it would have been fall of 2004 at that point. And it got to be summer before I was to report to duty for the for the judge. And I was at this law firm, and I was actually doing well enough at the law firm. I liked it. I was happy. But I just, it was like that gnawing little dream was still at me, and I, I still wanted to try. And um, I started thinking about going back to TV. I should mention that when I was in law school, I told you I always had a job, even in law school, and I um, got a job freelance reporting for the local NBC station there. So I kind of kept current on air, just part-time, but I had a current tape. So that was good. I kept my foot in the door because I always knew I had this idea. And it was just one of those forks in the road where 
right now, you can go do this clerkship, and then you're on this pedigreed path, and you are... And you can become a Supreme Court justice, uh, Supreme Court clerk, clerk and, and from be, there, you can get any job in the legal profession. Yes, or go, I wanted to be a prosecutor. I thought, okay, go clerkship straight to the Department of Justice. It Great. was the path was laid out. It was shiny and gold, and I was on my way. And something stopped me, and I realized I still had this dream to try to be that legal correspondent and make it in national news. So I started thinking about what to do, and I decided to go to the judge and tell him I wasn't going to come clerk for him. Did you have a job lined up? No. No job. That's exactly what the judge said when I told him. I went to his chambers and I said, Judge, I am not going to be able to come work for you this fall. I am going to go back to my roots in journalism, and um, so I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, do you have a job? I said, no. He said, do you have any prospects for a job? I said, no. <laughs> he said, okay. Um, well, he was so nice trying to understand. He's like, I just, you know, why don't you just come work for me for a year? It's only going to help you. And I get it. It's your dream. Well, then you can go do your dream after that. And I'll, you know, I'll help you any way I can. And I said, judge, I know what you say makes perfect sense, but I know myself. And if I do not do it right now, I will never have the courage again. And he said, okay, I get it. I get it. And he walked me to the door of his chambers and he said, well, I wish you the very best of luck. And I hope one day you come try to interview me. Of course, I'll say no. (laughs) He's a judge, you know, and he was like, you know, best of luck to you. And then I left and I thought, what did I just do? I have no job. I mean, I was still at the law firm, so I was doing that for a while and I just tried to cobble together some opportunities, called some people I used to know and my news director at the in DC. And he said, go up and see this woman in NBC. And I ended up getting an agent and which was a whole other process. Did you, were you, when you walked out of there though, did you feel good or did you feel scared? Mm, scared. More scared. Yeah. Scared. Like, oh boy. Wow. You did it. You really did it. Did he ever contact, did he, do you, did, what happened? Like, yeah. So years later, well, uh, so just to, to close yeah. the loop a few months later, Long months later, I got a job at Court TV, which was, I don't think exists. And no, I know for a fact it doesn't yeah, exist anymore. But it was, TV. Yeah, it was yeah. a national network that covered trials. They wanted lawyers who had on air experience. And I got that job and it was amazing. And I was thrilled. And so years later, I was back in DC covering the Scooter Libby trial in that same federal courthouse. And this clerk came down to me and said, I, I'm Judge Bates' clerk. He wants to know, will you come say hi? And so I went and saw him, and he was adorable and lovely. I'm so it's proud like, of so you, I'm so happy right? that, and this was before I went to NBC or any of it. So he was, you know. It's so funny that it's your story, because you know it's also his story. Totally. And He's other, like. Oh, yeah. And the funny thing is, the other clerks in the building were like, oh, we everyone's heard about right. you. Yeah. You're, like, it's a legend. Oh, you're the person. Because the great punchline <laughs> is this, oh, this crazy girl came and blah, blah, blah. And then the punchline is, and that girl is Savannah Guthrie. It's so funny. I know. And I, it, this was way before then. But even then, clerks were like, oh, did you hear about the person who didn't take the clerkship? It was like, ah. there. And But as it turned out, it, it worked out. But yes, that was... That was a, that's a perfect example of if I hadn't done it right, if I hadn't done it in that moment, yes, I wouldn't have. And I have to give credit to my mom. I think a lot of parents have fear. They want to support their kids and encourage them, but they're like, uh, but you need a J-O-B. Please don't come move home. And my mom really said, okay, Savannah, you can do it. You know, you can do it. If you want to do it, you should go for it. 
you know, she didn't say, well, it would be safer to She didn't allow her fear to control. She didn't, and I'm really impressed. I hope I do that for my kids someday. I'm sure that you will, as well as making sure their hair is okay. I'm going to do a lot to help the hair situation. All right. Listen, <laughs> there's so much more that I wanted to talk to you about. The good news is I can off the air. But I no, there is so much more I wanted to ask you about. But I, I have to say thanks for doing this. It's a big news day, and I know you have stuff that you have to do. Um, people, if you want to follow Savannah Guthrie on Twitter. Nice. But don't be mean. <laughs> uh, you can. She's at Savannah Guthrie. Yeah, at Savannah Guthrie. I'm at Brian Koppelman. And um, thanks for listening. So fun. Thank you. Thank you.